Hello, everyone. You're listening to episode number seven of the Elysium Project podcast. I'm your host, Brian Johnson. This episode was recorded August 12th, 2018. If you enjoy the content we create and want to support this vision, please head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Elysium Project Podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Elysium Project Podcast. For only $4 per month, you can get access to exclusive insiders content. However, any donation is appreciated. Patreon is a secure crowdfunding platform run by Patreon, not me, and you can cancel at any time. We just posted two videos for our insiders from the Great Canadian Fruit Festival, one with none other than Dr. Doug Graham. I'm here today at the 2018 Great Canadian Fruit Festival, joined by Dr. Doug Graham. Dr. Graham is the author of The 80-10-10 Diet, as well as his newest book, Perpetual Health. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Gosh, it's a treat to be here. Thank you, Yeah, Brian. it's a beautiful day today. Summer in Canada, it's really lovely. Yes, yes. So first, some of the listeners who might not know about 80-10-10 Diet, can you just break it down? What is that? And what ins- how, did you, how did you come up with the concept? That could take me a long time. <laughs> um, no, I, I can't be concise with that. The 80-10-10 the diet is an application of, of what we know in nutrition to be true. We know in nutrition certain, certain facts that if you go through any basic nutrition course, they're going to tell you about the benefits of eating fruits and vegetables, the, the fact that plants offer some three or four hundred thousand phytonutrients that are not found in animals. So when you eat animal food, you get basically about a hundred nutrients or 120 nutrients. Uh, Whereas when you eat plants, you get about 400,000 plus those 120. And, And so the idea of eating a plant base diet or plants only for your diet makes nutritional sense. Mm. Uh, From there, the various experts have taught us, whether we look at cardiologists or cancer specialists or weight management specialists, sports medicine, um, they've all told us that most people eat too much fat in their diet, that we need to have fat. And like with all medical parameters, you don't want to have too much, but you don't want to have too little. Uh, the average person eats about 45% of their calories from fat, whereas the medical recommendations are closer to 10% of our calories from fat. Um, the minimum would be about 3 If you get less than 3% of your calories from fat, you're probably underdoing it. But if you go much beyond 10%, predictable health decline, symptoms, predictable symptoms will accrue. They might not come about on the very first meal, but they'll accrue. So you can get away with teens, and then as you go into the 20s and beyond, you start getting increasing accumulations of predictable health decline. Uh, Cancer, diabetes, heart disease, digestive disorders, chronic fatigue are are among the first ones that come to mind. 
at the same time, the world average consumption for protein is 11% of our calories. Again, the numbers came out 3 to 10% when we look at the medical recommendations. Go below 3% of your calories from protein. It's, it's conceivably not enough protein. Mm-hmm. But go above 10 and you start stressing your kidneys. You start pushing other internal organs into functions that are overdrive and, and eventually wear them out too soon. So by the time we got to recommendations of 3 to 10 and 3 to 10 for protein and fat, it really only left us with 80 or above for carbohydrates, hence 80-10-10. The concept of 80-10-10 is not mine. Many doctors have used the phrase 80-10-10 in their dietary recommendations since the 70s at least because the science has been there for a long time. What I did was apply that nutritional science into or convert into a raw food approach because that has been my dietary preference for a long time. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the science supports the consumption of raw food. I mean, we look in nature and all the creatures eat raw, except for us and our, our pets, if you will. But uh, all the creatures eat raw in nature and always have for as long as there's been creatures on Earth. Uh, the science has now been about 100 years old that we're showing the negative effects of cooking food to include things like carcinogens, uh, which are formed when you heat food. Uh, Carcinogens are things that cause cancer. Uh, Tremorogens are created when we heat foods. Uh, Things that generate tremors, Mm -hmm. things like Parkinson's tremor and intention tremor and and other types of tremors that are formed, tremorogens are formed when we heat our food, uh, tumorogens and mutagens, uh, tumorogens, the, you know, promoting the production of tumors, non-cancerous tumors, and then um, the mutagens being things that result in the creation of cells that are not exactly like their parents. So we're not perfectly recreating. Uh, This is also referred to as an aging factor. So if we want to rapidify aging, Mm. um, cooking our food is one of the ways that we can rapidify the aging process. Uh, The cool one, I think, are called the teratogens. The teratogens have almost no negative health effects on us. The negative health effect shows in our offspring or their offspring. So we're doing damage down the generations. Mm-hmm. And, and definitely teratogens are demonstrated clearly in, in all cooked foods. So there's a lot, of, a lot of potential harm before we look at what are called the anti-nutrients. Uh, anti-nutrients are substances in cooked food that result in an increased need for specific nutrients. Mm. And so we're, we're not only 
damaging, like some people say, oh, you know, when you cook your food, you damage nutrients. Well, that is true. But you also create anti-nutrients, which increase the need. So you, you're knocking out nutrients and increasing your need for nutrients at the same time. It's a double whammy. And that comes from, from cooking? And, that's, that's cre- and that happens when we cook food. And this science, this is, this is a relatively new science. Nutrition's a new science, mm-hmm. right? So the first information on this came about... Uh, there was a Dr. Maillard in France uh, in the late teens, and then a Dr. Pottinger uh, wrote a book, Pottinger's Cats, in the 1920s. Uh, and, and then by the 1950s, when the Journal of American Medical Association put out statements about dietary fat causing, causing diabetes or resulting in diabetic symptoms, hmm. and the, the way to get rid of it, it was to reduce dietary fats. I mean, it's, it's not new information, right, when we're talking about stuff that's 100 or 90 or 60 years old. But since then, we've learned more and more and more. The science of sports nutrition came about, and our medical testing technology became highly refined to the point where we now know that when our fat consumption goes beyond 10%, or our protein consumption goes beyond 10%, we're compromising our health and compromising our carbohydrate consumption, which Mm. is designed for us to be above 80%, Mm -hmm. hence the 80-10-10 diet. It's it's interesting because uh, over the last few years, I've noticed the popularity of the ketogenic diet increasing, which is quite the opposite of uh, what you're... That's sort of 10-10-80, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Oddly enough, and and this is where a historical perspective really helps, the ketogenic diet is not a new idea. Uh, The the high-fat, high-protein concept of diet uh, has been introduced to American and world populations seven times in the last 120 years. (laughs) Almost exactly... Once every 20 years, hmm. proving pretty well that one generation learns nothing from the generation that went before. Um, 20 years ago, it was Atkins. 20 years before that, it was the liquid protein diet. 20 years before that was a store-bought version of liquid protein diet. Uh, 20 years before that, there was some French thing, and I can't even tell you what it was called, but I have read articles on this. Every 20 years in the last... 120, seven times, hmm. uh, there has been an introduction of, of a low-carbohydrate approach to diet, which works like crazy for a variety of reasons in an extremely short-term approach to health. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interventionary measure. And, and so since the average person's consuming about 45% of their calories from carbohydrates... If you cut out carbohydrates, you've cut your calorie intake in half. Ah, yes, say the keto people, but you can have all the butter and all the mayonnaise you want. But there's nothing to put them on. So how much mayonnaise do you want if there's <laughs> nothing to put on? Put it on. Yeah. Um, and ah, yes, they say, but you can have all the, all the meat you want. To which I go, well... Anybody who's interested in a ketogenic diet of eating all the meat you want was probably eating all the meat you wanted before they went on ketogenic diet. They were mm. just eating all the meat they wanted 
plus all the carbohydrate they wanted, they cut the carbohydrate. So it's a short-term stopgap measure. It's an intervention to try to lose weight on a short-term because so far, no one has found a way to make a cooked food diet work for health, for sports performance, for weight management, for overall happiness, for um, you know cooking being the number two cause of greenhouse gases in the world, uh, for house fires, the number one cause of house fires is cooking foods. <laughs> I mean, there's just no way, no safety, health and safety issues. There's no angle from which we can look at cooked food and say, oh yeah, that's a good thing. Uh, so it's a it's an intervention because because no one's been able to find a way to make cooked food diet work. Yeah. So it's always like stick your finger in the dike, stick your finger in the dike kind of a stopgap measure. So for a little while we'll cut out we'll cut out all the carbs and yeah you'll drop weight. And the reason people feel so good, the reason they might say, oh I'm thinking more clearly, I'm there's two reasons for that. But the reason they say I'm thinking more clearly or I, I feel so much better, uh, A, they've cut out all the junk. Part of ketogenic is to, you know, you cut out all the junk foods because all of them are carbohydrate-based. Mm-hmm. So you cut out all the junk foods, you of course you're going to feel better. And you're losing some weight. So of course you're going to feel better. Meanwhile, when you're on a ketogenic diet, the whole point of a ketogenic diet is that you're under-eating. You create what are called ketones. Well, ketones work on your brain chemistry much the way like having one or two drinks works on your brain chemistry. Most people have one drink and they have been dramatically affected. Hmm. But they don't feel as if they've been affected. It's the, it's the sneaky part of alcohol consumption. Testing, if we actually do testing on people who've had a drink, we can clearly demonstrate that, that perception has been changed, that, that spatial orientation has been changed, balance has been... Comp- a lot of things happen from one drink. But we don't feel it. Mm. Because one of the things that gets affected is our ability our sense of inhibitions and our ability to sense what we feel and so it has to get worse before you go oh i'm really drunk (laughs) (laughs) yeah but one drink is enough to affect us ketones affect our brain chemistry in much the same way and so one of although thinking is not more clear it feels as if it is more clear huh that's interesting one of the big parts of Elysium Project is we're firm believers in living harmoniously with nature. And your book has been a big influence on my life in terms of showing evidence that humans are, generally speaking, frugivores. Is that correct? I would say frugivores, yeah. I'd yeah. Say, I would say our anatomy and our physiology dictates that we must be frugivores. Uh, that comparative anatomical studies... Uh, show that all animals that are anatomically and physiologically similar thrive on similar foods. All of the anthropoid apes, uh, of which we are classed as a part of that group, all of the other anthropoid apes are frugivorous. They all eat fruits as their primary food, with, with the exception of the last one in the group, um, who is an anthropoid ape but just barely. And that is the gorilla. The the gorilla, 
doesn't eat primarily fruit. The gorilla primarily eats vegetation. Because when you're 500 pounds, going up in a fruit tree just doesn't work all that well. <laughs> and so he doesn't have access to the same kind of fruit that, that we lighter anthropoids are capable of getting out there on skinny branches. Um, however, if you give a gorilla fruit as an option, he'll always take it as a first choice. Mm. He'd rather peel a banana than eat bark off of a tree. Yeah. I know you know I was going to ask this. I'm a student, as you know, of Dr. David Jobs, or I've studied a lot of his work. Um, he would say, as well as some other people, I'm sure you get this question a lot, what about hybridized fruit, the banana therefore being a hybridized fruit that um, does not necessarily grow in nature without the aid of humans? Hybridized fruit, that's an interesting question. I've spoken with several botanists on this topic who have all said the exact same thing. I've also spoken with some anatomists on this question, who have all said the exact same thing. They all are in clear agreement that every living thing on the planet is a hybrid. Hmm. There is nothing alive on planet Earth that is not a hybrid of something that came before it. Uh, every plant, every animal is a hybrid, including you and I. Uh, and I've never spoken to a scientist who has said, anything other than exactly those words. All life forms on Earth are hybrid. Hybrid is not something to be feared. I, I won't eat GMO food. Uh, I think that's a Pandora's box that should never have been opened. Uh, and I very much respect that genetically modifying foods is a highly dangerous road to go down. Uh, bananas bananas are in particular, however work on a different system than humans in terms of their in terms of their genetic sequencing Human, humans use at least according to crick and watson and the people who did the the work on the the double helix of our genetic makeup in order for our in order for our cells to reproduce themselves our genes come in pairs and so it's called diploid genetics di for two However, we did not know this back in the 1800s when bananas first went seedless of their own accord. We didn't know about diploid genetics, nor did we know about really much about genetics on a microscopic scale. Uh, but bananas don't work on a diploid genetics. Bananas work on a triploid genetics, where only two of the three genes are chosen, meaning the potential for variation is huge. The f there's 500 varieties of bananas in the world. Mm. The wow. first 200 were totally created by nature, not by us. All of them were seeded. Mm. But in the late 1800s, bananas of their own accord went seedless about 50 years before we figured out how they did that which we can now explain through the chip the triploid genetics understanding uh, there are now 500 varieties 300 of them are, are seedless and and man has created about 200 of those but the banana itself uh, in various parts of the world became seedless of its own accord um, 
I don't I don't shun seedless fruit. I certainly don't shun um, anything that's a hybrid because I would there'd be nothing to eat. Mm. But uh, many fruits reproduce in ways that don't rely upon seeds. Uh, the mutinja is a I have I have mutinja trees in my back garden in Florida. Uh, the mutinja tree throws out very long roots, and anytime the root gets damaged, it sprouts a new tree from that point on the root. I have trees in my garden that are called bombin. Uh, the mombin tastes sort of like a plum and a tomato. I'm sorry, a plum and a pineapple put hmm. together. Oh, wow. Ra- it's rather nice, but it offers almost no calories, but a heck of a flavor burst. Hmm. Uh, the mombin is an exceptionally fast-growing fruit tree. Very rewarding to grow it because it's so fast. But in, in exchange for that rapid growth, the wood is very weak, and the branches fall off now and then. Just break from their own heaviness, and wherever a branch falls on the ground, it sprouts roots and grows a new tree, and the trees just march along and are wherever the branches fall. Uh, there are other trees that reproduce in other ways. As anybody's ever grown strawberries, know that strawberries produce runners, and then bait and then roots off of the runners. Uh, banana plants and many others produce from what's known as a, in botany as a corm. Uh, it does not rely, even seeded banana plants, the original bananas on the planet, did not reproduce by seed. They reproduced from the corm. They produce babies off the corm, which grows underground. It's not the root. It's a separate structure within the banana tr- plant. Um, but there are many ways. Uh, pineapples don't reproduce from seed. They reproduce they reproduce babies off of the base of the plant. So uh, so you see what are called vestigial seeds in pineapple. You see vestigial seed in mutinja, vestigial seed in a banana. Because the plant itself develops ways to reproduce that does not rely upon seed. As opposed to a papaya, where papaya is a hermaphroditic plant. You can have an, a male papaya plant. You can have a female papaya plant. And you could have a plant that's 99% male and 1% female, or 50-50, or 99% female, or any combination in between. It's totally hermaphroditic. If it's 100% male, it will make flowers, but it won't make fruit. If it's 100% female, it will make flowers, but the fruit will contain no seeds. Because it had no male section. It's got no seed. Uh, If it's Anything in between, it will produce fruit with seed inside, and the amount of seed is an indicator of how male was the plant. But again, it's this is a this is a tree that does reproduce. It's a tree. It's barely a tree uh, that does reproduce from seed. But within within biology, there's a tremendous number of ways of reproduction. Uh, there's a gecko that is an all-female, the The entire species is female. Hmm. And they they reproduce asexually. And every baby is an exact genetic copy of the mother. Except there's lots of different kinds of those geckos because every once in a while, the mother produces a baby that they've changed just a little. 
They have um, not reproduced true, mm. and so the so the babies will be a little bit different. But no male, no males in the entire species. Uh, to, to, I don't know. To me, hybrid's a quick answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I can make it a long one because because I looked into the topic enough. Mm-hmm. There are things in food that we should really watch out for. Mm-hmm. GMO. I would I would go with GMO, not yes. hybrid. Yeah. Hmm. And that's the rationale behind it. Yeah, makes sense to me. I was recently I've been helping a friend who has ulcerative colitis, and I was fascinated by the fact that. So many people have gone to 801010 to heal from things like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, ha- have you dealt with a lot of that? I, mean, I would say I've had hundreds at least, if not perhaps thousands of wow. clients with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, diverticulitis, spastic colon syndrome, uh, and GERD and the other names that we give, including obviously ulcers. Um, the entire digestive tract can have a, a huge number of problems when we supply conditions that are not appropriate for the health of yes. the of the digestive system. Uh, I've got a dear friend, Dr. David Klein, who wrote a book, Self-Healing mm. Crohn's and Colitis, uh, where he uses AD1010 in his recommendations. And so... Uh, and again, I know he's he's helped tens of thousands of people. So, so yes, uh, I get a tremendous number of people come to me and say, "Oh, I healed myself of my Crohn's, or I healed myself of my colitis, just by eating a ton of fruit." Mm-hmm. Until I could reintroduce vegetables back into my diet, uh, I mean, many people find that they don't have the digestive power to handle the fiber of vegetables at first, for a variety of reasons. Uh, because we don't we don't actually digest our food as much as we like to give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. We do some of the digestive processes, uh, like chewing, and and we produce twenty different digestive enzymes to deal with the proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. But there's a lot of a lot of parts to digestion that are done by microbes that live inside of us. Uh, thousands of colonies of with millions of members each. There are cities living inside our gut of different microbes. Those microbes change in size. Those microbe colonies change in size according to our diet as one of the factors. Our stress levels are another factor. But our diet is a huge factor. So when we eat meat as a primary part of our diet, the microbes that help us break down meat tend to flourish. And the ones that help us digest plant fiber are diminished in number. If a person who's been doing that switches overnight to a plant-based diet, for the first few days... They're going to have some challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be a die-off of the microbes that were consumed, good at breaking down meat. There's going to be an insufficient number of the fiber-digesting microbes. And so they may be prone to a few days. The beautiful thing about that, though, is that the lifespan, the reproductive cycle of microbes is usually around 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so you can get 
you can get 80 new generations of microbes in a day. Hence, I mean, a magnificent population explosion can happen in a short time. Uh, The microbes involved in meat-eating are called E. coli. The ones that are are very much plant-related are lactobacillus. And... And if you check someone's, well, basically what you do is you, is you, you have to do a fecal mm. uh, specimen testing. Mm. But if you look at the microbial colonies in, in the feces, uh, you can see somebody who's 85% E. coli and test them again a week later after eating only plants, and they'll be 85% lactobacilli. Wow. I mean, the turnaround is really fast. Yeah. Rewardingly fast. Because otherwise, you're, until then, you're suffering mm-hmm. with, I can't digest what I'm eating. The way to avoid that problem is to rely less on vegetables and more on fruit. Because the fibers in fruit tend to be what are known as, as soluble fibers, as opposed to the insoluble fibers that we see in vegetable matter hmm. and so the, they're much much easier on the system hmm. nice last question i have for you because this really fascinates me is candida and the fat connection and and fat in general in in terms of uh blood sugar which is a big part of uh 80 10 10 diet i almost look at candida as a non-issue and i, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to the people who are suffering uh, but i look at it almost as a non-issue in fact, I look at diabetes in almost the same light hmm. simply because the turnaround time is so fast. It's so easy. Uh, with and, and, and again, no disrespect, I know there's people who have been suffering with candida for a year or two or even longer, and, and gosh, that's terrible, but we're talking about something with a lifespan of 20 minutes, and, and you can turn around the entire generations of, <laughs> of candida in, in a matter of 48 hours, typically, or less. Mm-hmm. However, there's a complicating factor that there can be underlying visceral or, or organic problems. So, for instance, you know, if you have adrenal fatigue or, you have, or your thyroid's not functioning properly or parathyroid or or pancreas, I and mean, there are other issues that can result or lead you towards having candida problems in spite of dietary change. Hmm. So those underlying health issues also have to be addressed. So I would say that's maybe maybe one percent of the candida sufferers. Okay. The other 99% of candida sufferers will find that if they lower the fat in their diet down to single-digit fat consumption, that candida will become a thing of the past in under hmm. 48 hours. Wow. And as will type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. A well, thing of the past. So many people who are struggling with candida think they need to avoid fruit. Is Well, that would make sense if if we didn't know anything else about the way our bodies work. Mm-hmm. It would make sense to avoid fruit or to avoid sugar. But the reality is that everything we eat gets converted to sugar. 
and it gets converted to a special kind of sugar that goes into our blood. Uh, the technical name for that is blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. uh, all living beings have blood sugar. Now, scientists won't, you know, we'll call it blood glucose because it's a specific sugar. Uh, but, but everybody that's alive has blood sugar. And it really doesn't matter if the only thing you eat is blubber or oil or if the only thing you eat is protein powder uh, or the only thing you eat is domino sugar, for goodness sakes. Unless you have diabetes or some other sugar metabolic disorder, your blood sugar is going to be the same as everybody else's. No matter what you eat, yeah. And so, to not, to not um, cause candida or cause flare-ups of candida, because you're trying to control your blood sugar um, by not eating fruit, doesn't really make sense. Because, right. because the thing about eating fruit and the whole thing about eighty ten ten is that fat in the bloodstream, mm-hmm. and we're talking dietary fat, not body fat. Fat in the bloodstream slows sugar uptake from the bloodstream to the cells. Whereas, whereas when we have no fat or exceptionally low fat in the bloodstream, sugars go from the digestive tract into the bloodstream and directly to the cells where that's their final destination. So although, yes, sugar levels in the blood have to rise when we, after we eat, they only rise in order for the blood to carry the sugar to where it's going and then release it. If it doesn't release it, one of two things have to happen. We either end up with magnificently high blood sugar, known as diabetes, or we end up with high blood sugar that is then consumed by the candida microbes, sort of as a stopgap safety measure keeping you from having diabetes. But when when candida get that feast, they bloom. Mm-hmm. So you have a what's called a candida bloom. Hmm. Uh, if the sugar that goes into our blood can immediately get back out and go to the muscles, which is its destination, one way we, cr- we foster that is to create the need through physical activity or the progress, the passage of time. Because you know, 12 hours of sleep and rest in between dinner and breakfast, you create the need for sugar in the muscles. Or through fitness or physical activities, you create the need for sugar in the muscles. Mm -hmm. Then when you eat sugar, you eat any fruit or food, uh, it gets converted to sugar, it goes into the bloodstream, it goes straight to the muscles, and we don't have either of those problems, candida or diabetes. Mm -hmm. My experience with diabetes and candida is is just thousands of people coming to me saying, thank you, I don't have that problem anymore. Wow. Just keep dietary fat down below 10% of total calories. It's amazing to me that more people don't understand that fat-blood sugar connection. Again, I'm going to go back to... It's amazing to me because, because it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1959. Wow. There's So it's not news. Yeah. Uh, there's a doctor on YouTube who put out a great video 14 or 15 years ago called How to Become a Diabetic in Six Hours, and and he reproduces the 1959 article, but with the new technology so that he can make it all visible to the viewers on YouTube. It's also on Vimeo, so wherever you prefer to find it. 
Uh, it's just called How to Become a Diabetic in Six Hours. And he shows what happens to his blood sugar when he, after he eats a high-fat meal. Wow. Uh, it's, it's as clear as bell. Huh. So the the information is not new it's it's in all sports medicine it's it's in all heart disease studies it's it's in all cancer studies it's it's been shown in all the diabetic studies that when we reduce dietary fat down to single digit levels or even low teens diabetes becomes a thing of the past wow so it, it, it's amazing how we hold on to the concept of treating the symptoms mm-hmm. rather than eliminating the cause of the problem. <laughs> yeah, blows my mind. <laughs> well, Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you've been a huge influence on me and my life and my journey uh, towards uh, optimum health, and I'm sure I can speak for most people at the festival as well. If there's anyone listening today that wants to learn more about 801010 or any of the other books that you've written, uh, where can they go? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Brian, for being open to let me play a part in your life. There's a lot of a lot of people have a lot of things to say. I'm honored anytime anybody lets me even in a tiny bit to listen a little bit to what I have to say. Um, health has been my passion for more than 50 years and it's just been a route that I've I've I was driven towards hmm. and I'm glad to have pursued. Uh, people want to know more about my work what i do retreats uh, coaching i am on foodandsport.com it's 10 letters the word food the letter n as in nancy uh, the word sport foodandsport.com we run a free form if you ever want to ask questions you can go to the 801010forum.com and ask me anything you like i'm happy to answer every single day thanks so much doug it's a treat thank you again brian Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember, if you enjoy any of our content, the best thing you can do to support this vision is to share our content on social media. You can also check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Elysium Project Podcast. That's www.patreon.com slash Elysium Project Podcast.